As I was, uh, as I was thinking about this this morning, um, I realized I messed up. Since today is the AFC Championship game, um, and just so you all know, we're going to talk about humility today. Um, <clears throat> ooh, nobody likes that. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about humility today, um, and I should have. Now, this isn't a shot at the Chiefs or Burrow, although tons of application for all of these guys. But you know what I should have done? I should have talked about the offensive line. That's what I should have done. But I'm not that smart, so I didn't. Instead, I want to talk about this guy. Can we put him up there? I want to know how many of you know who that guy is. If you know who it is, raise your hand. John Stockton. Yeah. Some of you are all over that. Some of you know who this guy is. How many of you don't have any clue who John Stockton is? What is wrong with you people? That's okay. Honestly, um, it's all right. If you don't know who he is, it's all right. I'm going to tell you who he is. And some of you won't care, but hopefully, even if you don't care about basketball, like even this much, just stay with me for a minute. Hopefully I can connect some dots on why we're talking about um, this guy right here. Okay. Um, John Stockton, I, I think those of you who know who he is, was he a good player? Could you say he was a good player? Okay, good. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Uh, John Stockton is an NBA Hall of Famer. Um, he is one of the all-time greats to play the game. Um, his, he is so good, okay? He was so good that his number has been retired both by his college of Gonzaga and by the Utah Jazz. You can't even wear his number anymore because he was so great. Um, he was a 10-time NBA All-Star, 10 times an NBA All-Star. Twice he was named to the All-NBA First Team. Twice he was an Olympic gold medalist including one team that I'm sure you all have heard of. Um, in 1992, there was this team that they called the Dream Team. You all familiar with that term, like the Dream Team? Yeah, he was a part of that team, okay? So, two-time Olympic gold medalist, including the 1992 team. But see, the thing about John Stockton is his best season was in 1988 and 89, okay? 1988, 89, and that year he was seventh, seventh in the MVP voting. Seventh, that was his best season. Now, now, uh, I just... I'm just curious, like, let's see if we can figure this out. How can a player with the resume I just read, 10-time All-Star, two-time All-NBA first team, how can he never be better than seventh best in the league? Now, just think about this for a minute. If you are a first-team, first-team All-NBA player, okay, just so you know, there are five players, okay, and he was seventh in voting. Does that make sense to anybody? Okay, now, now. This guy has a tremendous resume, but never better than seventh in the league according to MVP voting. And that season was the, that 88-89 season where he had his career best in scoring, 17.2 points per game. Just over 17 points a game. Now, why in the world was this guy who scored 17 points a game, which is good, not great, but it's good. Why in the world is this guy an NBA Hall of Famer? Why? Well, I believe the answer is because he did the things that are not flashy better than anybody else. Um, he was willing to not be the scorer. He was willing to be a guy who passed. And that's what he's actually best known for. Some of you may know may know that he owns the career record for most assists in the NBA. And just so you know, it's not even close. I started looking to see how close somebody else was to him in passing the ball, like assists over their career. He has it by almost 4,000 career assists. Four, yeah, I didn't say 400, 4,000 career assists more, assists, more than the next person. Like, it's staggering how much better he was at distributing the ball than anybody else. Staggering. Okay, now, 
Again, this guy did not do things that jumped off the page. Again, he was 50th in the league, his best year in scoring. 50th in the league. Um, the year that he was 50th in the league, by the way, uh, there was some guy who I'm not familiar with. I think his name was Michael Jordan, um, who was the best scorer that year. Anyway, so he did these little things. He passed the ball well. And not only did he, does he own the career record for assists, he also owns a single season record for most assists per game. And again, that 88, 89 season where he had 14 and a half assists every, or on average, a game. 14 and a half assists. Just so you know, that's really good. Like, Obviously, it's an NBA record. That's really good. He led the league in the category of assists per game for nine consecutive seasons. Do, do you, like, I, maybe you don't care about basketball, but my goodness, nine straight seasons with the best players in the league, and he led this category. Nine consecutive seasons. But that's not all. Stockton also owns the career record in steals by almost 600 career steals, and he led the league in that category twice. Okay, So he did all of the little things well. Better than anybody else has. And for many years, he probably wouldn't have even been known as the best player on his team. There was another guy on his team that was a much more proficient scorer named Carl Malone. Some of you have probably heard of that guy. Well, he was a much more proficient scorer. So he would have probably been called the best player on his team. Yeah. But see, what's the point? Why do I tell you all this about John Stockton? What, wh- why? Like, you all don't care, I know. It's okay. You don't have to care. What's the point? Uh, the point is, Stockton was willing to hum. I don't know what he's like personally. On the basketball court, though, he was willing to do the humble part. The part that wasn't going to get all the recognition. The part that wasn't going to be glamorous. He was willing to do all of the other things to help his team. To be a part of the team. Now, see, I think that the problem that we see with basketball now, and so, just so you all know, I don't watch the NBA. Um, I, I really don't care what happens in the NBA. I just don't. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think one of the problems that there is around the game of basketball is everybody looks for the flashy player. The one that's, will, that's able to score all over the place. The problem is, if you can't pass the ball, it doesn't do you much good. See, what we need is players that are more humble, that are willing to give it up and let somebody else do the scoring. And similarly, I think as believers, we need to understand our position. See, this is where I start trying to connect the dots a little bit. And Why are we talking about this guy? Just so you know, as believers, we are not the star of the show. Uh, look, some of y'all are pretty cool people. I, I, I love y'all an awful lot. And some of you are very capable and very gifted people. You are not the star of the show. You're just not. Neither am I. Jesus is the star of the show. See, what we need to do then is we need to humbly accept the fact that he has given us a role to play. And we need to point people back to him. We need to be those on the team that are willing to distribute the ball. That's our job. So, it really, what that boils down to is, just like this guy up here, and I know, again, you guys don't care, he's known as one of the all-time greats because he was humble enough to pass the ball. See, if we want to experience greatness, if we want to experience true greatness in the kingdom, in our faith, we need to be humble enough that we give glory to Jesus. We need to pass it along. So, that's what we're going to talk about today. I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word, out of respect for reading God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. If you would like to follow along, we're going to read the first 14 verses together today. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, and then we'll dive in and hopefully you all see why we're talking about humility today. So Matthew 18, beginning at verse 1, says this. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open this word today, I pray that we would remember the humility it takes, not just to be great in your kingdom, but to enter your kingdom. Uh, Lord, that you would remind us that apart from your grace, apart from the image that you put in us, um, we're nothing but dust. So, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we are yours and that we would humbly accept, humbly accept who we are in Christ. That we would remember that while we we may be dust, you loved us so much. But, Lord, I pray that today you would show us what it means to be humble. I pray that you would show us the significance of humility and that we might walk all the more faithfully looking where you've led, looking where you continue to lead. And going and seeing disciples made in all nations. So Lord, I pray that you would help us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So Matthew 18, 1 through 14. Really this whole chapter, this entire chapter is framed by this question from the disciples. And I love this question from the disciples. And we're going to get into why here in just a minute. But um, these disciples, in verse, uh, verse 1, they come to him and they say, they say, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this whole chapter is framed with this question of greatness. Okay, now, uh, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, okay? So just remember this here in two weeks. Okay, two weeks from today, I want you to remember that this is how this entire chapter is framed. Because we're going to come back to this and we're going to talk about humility some more here in a few weeks. And I just found a way to make sure none of you all came back. Um, We're going to talk about humility here again in two weeks. Next week, Matt's going to be here and he's going to share with us. Uh, So I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. But please, just remember this question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because that frames this entire chapter. This entire chapter here, okay? Now, I'll do my best to remind you, but... This actually won't be the last time that this question or a similar question is posed to Jesus. It's going to happen again. So I think it's probably an important question. And not only that, I think it's incredibly relevant, or at least the answer Jesus gives is incredibly relevant. Um, because if, if we're all being honest, I think we want greatness. Um, <laughs> some of us want greatness. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, I, I've found to be true for most most men, especially young men. Now, I, I can't speak 
I can't speak to whether this is true in women or not. Just so you know, I've never been a woman. Um, I, can't, I can't speak to that. Um, but I have been a young man, and I've been a man, and I know, I know that feeling, like that yearning for greatness, like that thing that there is, especially in young men, that's just like, I know that I've got something great there. I know that I'm here for some tremendous thing, and I know that I'm not alone in that. I know guys experience that. Um, and whether ladies do or not, uh, maybe you could tell me, uh, I have no idea, but I know guys go through that. So I know that men want, they want this, this greatness, this thing. And this question makes sense here, especially whenever we think about it in, in that context. Keep, keep in mind, who are these disciples that Jesus is talking to? They're young men that are now following Jesus and they want to know, how can I be great? I got this thing in me that wants to be great. Not just, not just another guy. I want to be great. So they come to Jesus, they say, so who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not to mention, think about where we were just a couple weeks ago, where they were up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and here Jesus is transfigured. And now the other nine are here, and they're walking along, and they're thinking, okay, so those three got to go, so who's the greatest in your kingdom? Are they, are they better than us somehow? Like, how are they, how are they better than us? And who, who is the greatest? So this question seems pretty natural for these young men, especially given the context that they were in. These guys have left everything to follow Jesus. And they want to know, like, do we have some special standing? How can I be great? Am I great in your kingdom? But as Jesus addresses this question of greatness, really, he redirects the disciples. You know, I think it's funny. Whenever Jesus gets a question asked to him, rarely does he just say, here's the answer to your question. Usually, what Jesus does is he hears the question and he gives an answer to a bigger question. And that's what Jesus does here. He redirects them so that instead of thinking about greatness, now they're thinking in terms of humility and humility. So it's actually amazing what Jesus does. So he uses this opportunity, this question of greatness, redirects the disciples to teach them some lessons on humility. And I think that there are lessons that we all need to learn if we're going to understand true greatness, but even more if we're going to understand humility and what it takes to be great in his kingdom, but also enter the kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at these these lessons on humility. And Jesus says that humility, humility enables entrance into his kingdom. Humility enables entrance into his kingdom. Now, again, remember, the question is one of magnitude. It's like, who's greatest? That's what they're asking. But Jesus essentially says, let's back up just a little bit and let's start at entrance. We're not talking about greatness right now. Let's, let's just rewind a little bit. Let's talk about entrance into the kingdom, not just greatness. So Jesus says in verse 2, it says, Jesus called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that this is is these disciples going 100 miles an hour thinking, okay, we are in now. We are flying down the highway. We are in this thing. So how can we get to the pinnacle? How can we get to the top? And they're just flying. And Jesus slams on the brakes and says, whoa, boys, let's slow down a little bit. Easy now. Because we would think about these guys, these guys who have left everything to follow Jesus, and we think, surely they're in, aren't they? Like, they seem like they would be in, don't they? They've given things up. They've responded to Jesus' call to follow him. It seems as if they're in. They're following Jesus. They're working with Jesus. They've been empowered by Jesus. So they're probably a little bit shocked whenever they say, okay, who's the greatest? And Jesus says, whoa, let's talk about entrance. Let's talk about how you can be in the kingdom. (laughs) Um, and the reason I think that's so important is because I think some of y'all are worried about greatness whenever you need to be worrying about entrance. Um, I, I will tell you, as a young man, that was my experience. 
Um, I was worried about greatness for a lot of years. And I remember when, when I had the brakes slammed on me and God said, wait a minute, let's make sure you're in first. Uh, are you really even on the team? And I had to stop and I had to rewind just a little bit and I had to start rethinking this. Because it's really easy to think in terms of greatness. It's very difficult to slow down and think in terms of entrance. They're not wanting just to be in. They're wanting to be great. But Jesus says, no, let's rewind. You need to worry about entrance. But even as you talk to other people about their faith. Like a lot of times, especially where we live, we assume people are in. We just naturally assume that everybody has a similar background to what we have. We assume that people around us are are born-again believers. We just assume that. All the while, the people we're talking to, they haven't ever entered the kingdom. We're trying to tell them how to be great in the kingdom. Well, now there is some overlap there, but we need to rewind sometimes. We need to slow down and we need to ensure interest before we start talking about greatness. And I think that what Jesus does here is incredibly wise. And obviously that's the understatement of the year. So there we go. Now, I know that I'm probably guilty of trying to build people up in Christ before I've ever stopped to make sure that they are in Christ at all. Um, We need to understand, we need to deal with entrance before we deal with greatness. But look at the illustration he uses here, okay? It says he calls this little child over to him. Has a little child come and stand among him. Now, now these are grown men. They might be young men, but these are grown men sitting here asking, okay, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, hey, uh, this little child, why don't you come over here and stand here? And now, what is this little child? And I think that's important because it helps us with, with wrapping our minds around what Jesus is doing. See, a lot's been made of this word, little child. And the Greek could indicate an infant. And a lot of people have said, this is an infant. Um, I won't go that far because I think that the word more often, more often represents a, a, what's called a child under training. So a child as, as old as seven years old. And whenever I read that just this week, and I'm thinking, okay, this little child is the one that we need to emulate. They have, that, they have that something in them that we need to think about. And I started thinking, you know what? I've got a little boy who's seven years old in my house. Uh, and this started to come alive a little bit. Like, this little child is saying, here, hi, buddy. I see you. This little child, like, that's what he says. You've got to become like this little child, this child that could have been up to seven years old. Um, and he says, unless you become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom. But what is it that Jesus sees in this little child that makes the illustration work? What is it that he sees in this child that makes this illustration work so well? Like, what quality is it that we need to emulate? Or is it just like, hey, now we have to rewind in our thinking so that we only think like a seven-year-old? That seems like it's incredibly reckless, right? Um, I hope that I can reason better than my seven-year-old. Now, don't get me wrong. He comes up with some stuff that blows my mind. Um, But... I don't think we should just think like little children. I'm not saying that you have to rewind to when you were seven. That's not the point Jesus is making at all. So I don't think that's it. Is he talking about like immaturity or being childish? Again, no, that doesn't make sense either. Is he talking about innocence or purity or faith? And the answer is no to all those things. Instead, Jesus says in verse 4, he gets to the point there and he says, here's what this little child has that you need to emulate. He says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child. Whoever humbles himself like this little child. See, the quality that we need to long for that's like that of a child is one of humility. We need to long for humility. So I started thinking about that in terms, again, of my seven-year-old. How is he humble in ways that I need to long for? Like, what does that really look like? And what I realized is, my seven-year-old boy, he's just now starting to get that thing where he's trying to be great. 
Um, he, did, he just doesn't care for the most part. He doesn't want to be great. He just, it's enough for him to know that he's loved and he can go do things that he's cared for. That's enough for him. Because what he knows is that he has needs that are bigger than him. He knows that there are certain things that he can't provide on his own. He knows that. You don't have to tell it. He just knows it. It's somewhat instinctual. He knows that he needs mom and dad to care for him. To take care of his most basic needs. And he's humble enough to acknowledge that. He knows. Now, do we often recognize that? That we can't even take care of our most basic need. See, our most basic need is not food, water, shelter. I know we talk about that a lot. We teach kids from a young age that that's what you need. No, what you need is a savior. Because you are a sinner who is destined to die eternally. Apart from the grace of God in Jesus. What you need is a savior. That is your most basic need. Are we humble enough to recognize that we can't do that on our own? That's what makes this illustration work. And what's more is I get to watch kids coming out of this place every week for dots, and it's, it's awesome. We get like 90 kids in and out of here. And here's the thing. They come in, and especially the younger kids, the older ones start to lose this as they get older, but the young kids, like kindergartners or first graders, they're my favorite. I love the little littles. Like, they're, they're the best, y'all. They just don't care. They just don't. See, whenever they look at people, they're not concerned with how great this person is. They're just not. They're not worried about social status or economic status or, like a lot of adults, political status. We, they just don't care. Like, they just see another person. They look at a classmate and they're like, that's just my friend. They don't know. Like, they don't care what your home life... They don't have any idea what your home life is like. That's not even registering to them. They're humble enough to know you're a person. You're just my friend. Like, we worry about greatness. Kids just worry about, hey, uh, you're my friend. It's amazing to watch. It's the, it's the coolest thing. So I love watching these kids because they just don't have that agenda. They just don't have that thing in them that's like, oh, you can help me in some way. So yes, you are my friend. No, you're just another person. It's, it's amazing how kids interact with one another. And young children just don't seem to care. So while the disciples, they're here asking Jesus, who's greatest in your kingdom? Jesus calls over this child who's just happy to be cared for to stand among them. <laughs> they're like, hey, I don't see guys who are worried about being great. I just see men. I just see people. <laughs> That's all they see. They just don't care. Now, Jesus does also say that the one who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. So he not only ties humility to entrance, he does tie it to greatness. But before he ever talks about greatness, he rewinds and says, let's talk about entrance. Okay? See, oftentimes, I think we're so concerned with greatness that people will miss the entrance. I mean, just think about those who Jesus uses. And he says, on that day, some will come to me and say, didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? Like, shouldn't we be great in your kingdom? We did all these things in your name. And Jesus says, you know what? I'll have to tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. People missed entrance because they were so concerned with greatness. So concerned with greatness that they missed the entrance. See, we in our pride, we are so worried with what we can do to be greater, to earn more favor, to make God love us more or honor us more, that we miss the point. It's not about him honoring us. It's about us honoring him. That's what it's about. We miss the fact that we have a God who loves us anyway. Whether we perform or we don't, God loves you. He cared for you. He brought you into his family. He adopted you as a son or daughter. Church, what we need to pursue is humility. Because as we humbly recognize our inability, we rely more and more on his ability. Um, 
whenever we realize we can't do a whole lot, or uh, I've quoted Virgil on this more than once, and uh, he probably doesn't care that I said his name, but um, anyway, he's told me more than once, the more and more he learns, the more and more questions he has. Um, That's humility, though. Recognizing the more and more you grow, it's realizing I don't have all the answers. And the best part is you don't have to. It's good to look for answers, but typically whenever you find that answer, it shoots off in four other questions. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And whenever we experience true humility, whenever we exhibit true humility and rely more and more on the grace of God, then we can experience not only entrance but also greatness in his kingdom. Um, And really what humility does is it makes little of us and it makes much of Christ. That's what humility is. Just like Stockton likes to distribute the ball, not to make much of himself, but to make much of his team. That's the point. We need to make little of ourselves to make much of Christ. So humility enables entrance into the kingdom, but then humility must be developed in the kingdom. Must be developed in the kingdom. Okay, humility comes pretty easily for children, which is what makes that illustration work. But for some reason, as we get older, we become increasingly prideful. So humility is something that I think has to be developed. It's something that has to be built. Verse 5, Jesus says, And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, is what Jesus is saying here, is this, does this mean that if we want to welcome Jesus, we have to start an orphanage or bring in a whole bunch of children to live in our home? Well, I don't, I'm, I'm trying the whole bunch of children in my home thing, but that's a whole different story. Um, is that what he's saying? Well, I think that's a good place to start. I think that's fabulous if somebody decides to do that. I think it's an awesome thing, and I certainly think that would be applicable. But I think he's referring to something else. I believe the verses 5 and 6 here, they go together. They go together with a kind of positive and negative effect. All right? He says, if you welcome or if you reject. And the positive outcome of welcoming would be welcoming Jesus also. And then you have the rejection, the negative side here. It would be the one who rejects the little one. It causes them to fall away. Then they would face condemnation. So the child like this of verse 5 is the little one who believes of verse 6. And if that's the case, if I'm right, and just so you know, that was a lot of words. If you're not following me, I'm going to get to the point here. Don't worry. Um, If I'm right in the way that I'm seeing this, then the children that Jesus is referring to here are the little ones who believe. They're the ones who have humbled themselves before God and have become his children. We're talking about believers. And I believe that's who Jesus is talking about. Whenever he says, if you welcome one of these little ones, I think what he's saying is if you welcome a believer or if you reject a believer, which makes sense, right? Uh, I've read, it seems like a lot, and I've used this analogy a lot, um, that we are Christ's ambassadors. That's how we're referred. We are, we are his official representatives. As believers, we are his official representatives. So as the church, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, it not only means that we need to take care of little children. I certainly think that that's an application that we could look at here. You certainly need to take care of those who are vulnerable. But it also means that we seek to build up all of God's children and strive to serve and minister to them, regardless of what social status, political status, whatever status they might have. I really don't care. We need to be striving to serve and build up all of God's children, accepting them. We should be looking for other believers and look to build them up. And if we don't, then we have a problem. Then we have a problem. And it's a problem in us. It's a problem in us. And that's actually where Jesus pronounces this woe, this proclamation of judgment. In verse 7, he says, Woe to the world because of offenses. 
For offenses will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. Okay, Jesus says, offenses are coming. They're going to happen. But you don't want to be that person that brings the offense. You know they're going to happen, but that's not an excuse. Just be like, whatever. It might as well be me. It's got to be somebody. No, that's a terrible attitude. Terrible attitude. But what are these offenses? What are these offenses? Uh, the NIV, it says, that it calls them things that cause people to stumble, which is fine. The ESV, I know some of y'all read the ESV, it calls them temptations to sin. Uh, but the Greek word is scandalon. It's this Greek word scandalon, which generally refers to a snare, um, a trap, or a stumbling block. Um, as I read a little bit further on this word, it often, often refers to the triggering mechanism in a trap. Uh, the trigger mechanism in the trap. So what he's saying is, woe to the person who brings that trigger that's just sitting there, that trigger that snaps that trap down on them. Woe to that person because of that offense. Now, the world and those in it are being likened to a trap and warned about the judgment that comes because of that trap. There are traps all around you. We talked about this in Sunday school. There are traps in the world that are going to want to destroy you. Just so you know, those are out there. Don't be the one who lays that trap, who tries to cause someone to stumble, or even unwillingly causes someone to stumble. Um, Within this context, Jesus says in verses 8 and 9, that if your hand, your foot, your eye, if it causes you to fall away, then you need to get rid of it. And again, this word fall away, it's very similar to that last word, that word scandalon. This word is scandalizo. It's it's the same word, just in a verb form. So he says... He says, if it causes you to sin, if it causes you or if it puts a snare in your way. He says, if it puts a trap in your way, if your hand or your eye or your foot, if it puts a trap around you, get rid of it. If it's a trap, get rid of it. Because life and death is at stake. And he says that it's better to enter life maimed than to be thrown into an eternal hellfire. Now, just so you all know, That's probably better. I would rather be alive with one foot than be an eternal hellfire. Y'all pick up on that, right? That's not difficult, is it? Y'all tracking? You good with that? That is not a hard concept. Hellfire, I don't know exactly what hell looks like, but I know it's not good. Okay? Um, So let's just go with that. And what he says, if, if there's something that causes you to stumble, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Now, we talked about this because Jesus talked about this all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. So that's been a little while ago, I know. Um, But he talked about it there too. And he uses this same illustration. If your hand or your foot, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Cut it off. Throw it away. It's not worth it. And now, look, this is something I don't think we do very well. I don't think we do this very well. I think that we know that our hands cause us problems. And we're like, but I love my hands. I love my hands. I do. I love my hands. Um... They don't work like I think they should, but I I love my hands. But if they cause us to stumble, we should throw them away. Um, The analogy that I like to use, and I think that this will also resonate with men, and I'm not just trying to pick on men today. I just know that this is one that has resonated with me in the past, so I know this will resonate with men. Um, Your eyes will cause you to stumble. Your eyes will cause you to stumble. You have to have mastery over your eyes. You have to. Or it will cause you to stumble. Um, yeah, let's go there. Uh, we're already there. This is about to get heavy and whatever. Pornography use in our country is ridiculous. Like the number of men who use pornography on a regular basis would, would just disgust you. 
if you just saw the numbers. Even, even if you're one of those men, it would still disgust you. It's, it's crazy. Now, women aren't excused for that because the number of women who use it regularly is increasing. It is increasing. Now, men don't seem to be increasing because it's already too high. So there you go. Um, men who use it is it's at an extreme level. And why is that? Why, why is that? I believe it's because our eyes have led us to a trap. Satan has set a trap knowing that we will fall for it. Why? Why? Well, because we have very natural urges, but our eyes will lead us to abuse that. And what Jesus says here is if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, is he talking about literal self-mutilation? Please, don't go home and gouge your eye out and be like, well, the preacher told me to. Just don't, okay? I'm not talking about literal self-mutilation because I don't think Jesus is talking about literal self-mutilation. And I told you months ago, and this was my application for this, um, there's a little app on your phone called Snapchat. I deleted it. Um, I've actually deleted it twice because I had it gone, and then I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's better. It's not better. Um, so I deleted it. Why? Because I like to watch these silly videos uh, on my phone, okay? And I would spend probably too much time watching these silly videos, but I liked, I liked, like, Dude Perfect. I thought those things, these cool trick shots, I thought they were all cool. So I would watch those, and then I would... <laughs> Y'all judge me for this. I like fail videos. I like watching people fail miserably. I thought it was hilarious. People riding their bike and just crash and burn. Um, I, I thought it was funny. So I would watch these videos. Next thing I know, right underneath that, there is this section that says uh, suggested videos. And as I was watching these silly videos that I really don't think, well, they are hurting, hurting those people who made the videos, but I mean, they're not bad. Like, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with those videos. So I was watching those. Next thing I know, in the suggested videos, there are things that are pornographic popping up. And I realize that it's very easy to get sucked into that temptation. Now, I'm not telling you all you have to go delete this app. I'm not, my goal is not to wage war on Snapchat. That's not the goal. The point is, if there is something that you know is a trap around you, don't be like, yeah, but this is so much fun to watch these silly fail videos. All the while, there's this trap right there just waiting to eat you up and destroy you. Gouge your eye out and throw it away. Cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Whatever it is, get rid of it. It's not worth it. Get rid of that thing. Now, again, let's bring it back to the context that we're talking about here today. This context of humility that Jesus presents this same illustration. Let's bring it back here, okay? What's he talking about? He's telling these men they need to deal with their pride. Right? That's how this is all framed. They want to be great in the kingdom. And he says, if there's something in you that causes you to want to be that great, that you miss the point of humility... Get rid of it. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. So we as a church must radically deal with pride as we seek to develop greater and greater understanding of humility. So humility enables entrance into the kingdom. It must be developed in the kingdom. Third, humility always displays a concern for others in the kingdom. Always displays a concern for others in the kingdom. So not only did Jesus pronounce this woe of judgment on the one through whom these scandals or offenses came, uh, but now he strengthens the idea of looking out for others. Okay, He strengthens this idea. Verse 10, he says, See to it that you don't despise any of these little ones. And the emphasis in the sentence is on you. It's like he says, Make sure that you do not despise any of these little ones. You don't despise them. Because the world's going to do some things. The world's going to hate people. The world's going to set traps for people. You be different. You have to do something different. But why? Why is it that we have to be so concerned with fellow believers? Why is it that we need to look out for them? And here he says, because their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. 
Now, some people have read this and been like, hey, that must mean that there's a guardian angel for every person out there. And if you want to think that, whatever. I don't know that I care that much. What I don't think is that that's the point. Um, I think the point is, is there's an authority over the life of a believer that is far more powerful than you and me. There is an authority over the life of a believer that's more than you and me. And Jesus drives the point home here with this others-centered uh, others concern with this illustration. 12 through 14. I'm just going to read it again and we'll walk through it then. Okay. He says, what do you think? If someone has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Okay, and again, he's been talking about humility. He's been talking about causing not somebody to stumble, to care for other people. So what he's talking about is pride. And whenever we have pride, we tend to make much of ourselves and little of those around us. But the illustration he uses here demands demands that we care for others. Demands that we care for others. What he's doing here is he's emphasizing the care that God has for each of these little ones. And if we stick with the analogy, he's talking about believers. God has a tremendous care for each one. And the reason for that is that we might have greater concern for those around us. See, Jesus uses a similar parable over in Luke to explain his attitude towards sinners. Right? It's there that he says, if I go get one, I'm going to rejoice over that sinner who was lost. Now he's talking about little ones, believers, those who are already assuming, assuming, we're already assuming that they are believers. They're already in. But he goes and gets them back. And what Jesus is trying to show is his tremendous care for those in the kingdom. And we then should have the similar care for those in the kingdom. God has a tremendous concern for the individuals to make up his church. Which means we should have a tremendous care for those around us. So humility enables entrance into the kingdom, must be developed, always displays a concern for others in the kingdom. So what? Well, the truth is humility is hard. Humility is hard. Um, I, I'm going to quote a great theologian here. Y'all are going to get a kick out of this. Y'all ever heard of this guy named Willie Nelson? <laughs> All right, well, some of you already know where I'm going. Willie Nelson did this song, did this song, okay? And the lyrics go something like this. He says, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Y'all resonate with that? Okay. He says, To know me is to love me. I must be a hell of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best I can. Now, I share that for two reasons. One, I think it's funny. Uh, but the other reason I share that is because we tend to think that way. Now, most of you all aren't going around thinking, it's hard to be humble when I'm perfect in every way. It seems like, uh, I, I think I t made a joke about my mom here a while back. I think my dad said something like that before. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I'm just kidding. My dad's a good guy. Um, but we tend to think we're pretty special. We, we do. See, we have this natural tendency to think that everything revolves around us. And it is very natural. Um, I, again, I, I've told you this before. I remember a homiletics professor telling me, uh, telling us one time that uh, that all people are exceedingly self-interested. People are. They're exceedingly self-interested. You and I are exceedingly self-interested. Good or bad, whatever. We are. We naturally focus on ourselves. Very naturally focus on ourselves. We are naturally prideful people. Concerned with number one. Right? 
We do. We, we think about ourselves constantly. Whether it's the way we look, who's around us. Like we, We're not thinking about who's around us for their sake. We're thinking about it for our sake. We're constantly worried about self, about me. We are constantly worried about ourselves. And now there's certainly a place to care for yourself. But at the same time, like we are very prideful people. Always concerned with ourselves. And we tend to think, well, I'm special. Like, I, I mean, I want to teach my kids that they're special. Sure I do. I remember my, okay, I picked up my parents already. My parents told us from the time we were young, you guys are special. You are talented, you're gifted. They would, they would, they would affirm us every chance they got. Sometimes to the point where I was like, man, I'm really good, aren't I? My mommy says I'm handsome. Uh, yeah, we thought we were pretty special. And don't misunderstand. You are. You are. You are created in the image of God. You are created unique. You are special. But a lot of times what we hear is, I'm special, which means I'm better. That's what we hear. Whether we mean to or not, that's the way we interpret that. And we start to think, well, I'm special. Which means that everything should revolve around me. And a lot of times we even approach our faith this way. We think, well, it's about Christ coming to save me. And we make the Christian faith about me. I'm going to hurt your feelings. The Christian faith is not about you. The Christian faith is not about you. The Christian faith is about a good God who existed for all eternity, who loved you enough that he made his glory known by sending his son to die and to be raised again. The Christian faith is about a good God, not about you. Now, we're fortunate that he loved us enough that he made us special and that he used us in showing his glory. But see, what we need to realize is that the story is not about us. We are not the star. We don't need to be the one scoring all the time. Our job is to point people back to the one who did score. That's our job. So where do we learn this? How can it be developed? Well, I think that answer is really twofold. One, I hope it's learned in the church. I hope that you are encouraged by one another, um, that you are pointed back to Jesus constantly because that will naturally humble you. Um, But how else do we learn to be humble? Well, um, I was having a conversation with, uh, with a friend this week, and I told him I was talking about humility this week. He said, oh, so a little Philippians 2. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's coming. So here it is, Philippians chapter 2. I think we get the perfect picture of what humility looks like. And it says this, Paul writes, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Okay, now, this was a mind-blowing revelation to me. I'm going to pause right there, and we'll get the rest of this in just a minute. But... Um, consider others as more important than yourself. Um, See, I thought I was really smart. Again, I was very prideful. Um, I was being very prideful. And I started thinking, well, my wife and I, we we had a good marriage. Things were good. And people would ask me, like people who were looking to be married or were newly married or people who had been married for a long time sometimes, even like, so what do you think the secret to marriage is? And I know some of those people who were older and wiser than me, they were like, boy, this guy knows nothing. This is going to be hilarious whenever he gives this answer. But my answer was always this. See, whenever I, whenever I dated my wife, even to the time that we got married, like I remember thinking that, that my wife was too good for me. Like she, I didn't deserve her. And I remember thinking she is better than me. Now, it wasn't in some, um, some like, insecure way to where, like, I just can't even talk because you're, it wasn't like that. But I knew that my wife was, my wife is awesome. You know, I hope they don't have that on in there so she can't hear this because she hates whenever I talk about her. Um, but I thought my wife was too good for me. 
I did not deserve my wife. Um, what's funny, though, is while I secretly think she knew that, she would tell people that she didn't think she deserved me. So what made our marriage work? What made our marriage good? Well, it was this mutual thinking of the other person as better, as more important. And I thought, before I ever realized that this was in Philippians 2, I thought, Jared, you're a genius. You just cracked the code. Like, you're the smartest man alive. Look at you. You got this. And then one day I'm reading Philippians 2. I'm like, consider others more important than yourselves. Oh, man. Man, Paul had this figured out, which meant that God had it figured out. Man, I thought I had this. I thought it was a Jared thing. Oh, no, it was a God thing. Who knew? Crazy. So that's why I tell people, even whenever I do premarital counseling, I tell people, consider your spouse as more important than yourself. But in the church, as brothers and sisters, consider one another more important than yourself. That's what we're told to do. Consider others as more important than yourself. Why do we go share the hope of Jesus that we have with those around us? Well, we should be considering that lost person is more important than ourselves. That person, that person, their eternal good is more important than my comfort. It's more important. Why do we pour ourselves out for our families? Why do we give up of our time, our energy? Why? Because they're more important than you. See, that's what we need to start doing. We need to start thinking of others as more important than ourselves. And what's the perfect example of that? Well, it's Jesus. Paul goes on here. He says, uh, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, look like Jesus here. Have his attitude, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. You all hear that? He was God. Like God. You know, you know what God means, right? You know who that is, right? The one who was always there. He doesn't have any needs. He's got everything he could possibly want. Everything he could possibly need. And he's already existing eternally in three persons. He doesn't, not like he needs a friend. He's got himself. He is God. He has everything. Even though he had everything, he gave it up and became a man. That's humility. He looked out for us. Instead of seeing his deity as something to be exploited, he emptied himself By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did he do that for his own good? I would say no. Ultimately, he did it for the glory of the Father. But he did it for your good. How did he glorify God? By laying down his rights, his comfort, his very life for your sake. What does humility look like? What is this humility thing? Well, it's this. It's emptying yourself for the good of others. Considering them more important than your own life. Are we willing to do that? Because that's what Jesus did. And he is our example. So we need to look and do likewise. Giving up everything so that others might know God. Now, how do we practice that? That's a... Varied question. And I don't have time to get to all of those, mostly because I don't know all the circumstances that well. And I'm not that smart. So there you go. Um, But one thing I do know is that we need humility. We need to humble ourselves before God, and we need to consider others as more important than ourselves. And we need to serve the church. One way that you can start to develop that is by serving others. Um, So look for ways to serve to humble yourself. And as you do, not only will you see entrance to the kingdom, but you will also see greatness in the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful uh, for this word. 
Lord, I'm thankful that we don't have to be the star of the show. Lord, really, it's, it's rather freeing whenever we begin to realize that none of this depends on our ability or on, uh, on our performance, but instead we can point people back to the star. We can point people to Jesus who lived the perfect life, who died the death that we deserved and was raised for our justification. Lord, we can point people back to a God or to a Savior who glorified you perfectly. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in humility. Lord, in those areas that we are prideful, in those areas that we think that we're pretty special, I pray that you would help us to set them aside, not in a way that denies the God-given gifts that we have, but, Lord, in a way that, that says that I don't need to be the star. Instead, in a way that points people back to Jesus. Uh, so, Lord, if there is something that would cause us to stumble, I pray that you would show us how to remove it. Uh, Lord, and if, <laughs> and if we haven't entered the kingdom because we've been so concerned with greatness, I pray that you would slam on the brakes of our lives and that we might, we might see the exit, that we might go and we might enter your kingdom and humbly enter your kingdom, recognizing that we have a basic need that we cannot meet on our own but that you've met for us. So Lord, I pray for your help. I pray that you would teach us, that you would humble us, that you would, that you would cause us, that you would drive us to repentance. Lord, and we might be saved from our sin. Lord, and then I pray that we would develop that humility within your kingdom and we might serve one another, that we might truly consider one another greater than ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you would help us and teach us and direct us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.